really giving us, I would even say, the most complete systematic system of meditation in the Jewish tradition until the 20th century. Wow. Yeah. Abu Lafia lays it out very explicitly, systematically. You do this and this and this and this happens or this happens. Mm. And then you do this mm. and then you do this. Mm. In very particular, meticulous instructions for how to meditate and, according to Abu Lafia, how to attain prophecy. What can I refer to as? Tomer, Dr. Persico, Professor. No, Tomer, of course. Tomer, of course. Yeah, of okay, course. wonderful. We're here on the beautiful Shalom Hartman campus mm -hmm. as part of the interview series that we're doing together. And I thought we'd just jump right into the subject. Let's go. There, there are many, many books that have been written about Jewish spirituality, Jewish mysticism, all kinds of stuff, even many books on Jewish meditation. Right. But I have them. <laughs> you have some of those? Oh. <laughs> All of them? Do I? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure your wife is very happy with the yeah, full collection. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, but I think there's maybe only one real proper scholarly academic study of Jewish meditation done in a seriously rigorous, methodologically sound way. And uh, that might be your book. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I actually think you're right. <laughs> I think I literally wrote the book. <laughs> you wrote the book. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. Um... I wanted to really uh, have a panoramic chronological survey of the major trends, as it were, of Jewish meditation, past and present. I take it to the present and, and what my dissertation, this is my dissertation, <clears throat> what it tried to show is uh, how different, if indeed, our modern contemporary Jewish meditative techniques than ancient meditation techniques how are they different? And even conjecture, why are they different? Mm. Why, let me ask a, a simple question, why don't you see a lot of Jews today when practicing Jewish meditation uh, doing Kavanot and Yehudim, Lurianic Kabbalistic Kavanot and Yehudim and, 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 and connecting the Sfirot? Right, you don't right, see that a lot. Right. There's a reason for that, right? right. Yeah. It's, not, it's not the flavor of the month. Yeah. So maybe briefly... I know, th I know this is a real challenge because um, scholars like to do things slowly and carefully and they don't like to give quick overviews. But for, for the sake of the, the medium, yeah. could you give us a, a brief overview of the major trends of Jewish meditative traditions <laughs> from the, the beginning of time until 2022? How much time are you? <laughs> yeah. So, In, go for it. Uh, okay. But first, we, we need to lay some ground uh, facts, let's say. We need to understand, first of all, that Meditation was never a central tenant of the Jewish tradition. Uh, in order to do that, maybe let's imagine our uh, known iconography of the Buddha. And, you know, just imagine what comes up to your mind when you imagine the, the, uh, Moses. I'll put them right? up here on screen. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, if you, you know, so, so our iconography is the Buddha sitting cross-legged with eyes half-closed hands uh, on his lap, etc. Moses is coming down the mountain with two slabs of stone written, with commandments written on them, right? There's a difference there. Yeah. There's a difference that, that bespeaks something very fundamental. Buddhism is about meditation, about many other things, but certainly about meditation. Uh, uh, Judaism is about law, it's about revelation, it's about covenant, it's about many things, but not so much meditation. Now, that 
makes meditation, first of all, again, not a central tenant, but it also makes it, in a way, voluntary and, as such, very diverse. Why? Because the Buddha gave meditation instructions. The Buddha said, meditate this way. And then, of course, there are all kinds of variations of Buddhist meditation, but you've got your major trunk and branches branching out of it. In Judaism, you don't have that trunk. There's no trunk. Hmm. If you want to meditate as a Jew, you have to, you know, make something up or take something from tradition and make it into meditation or develop your own system or, or get a revelation of a system. But anyway, you're not depending, you're not basing yourself on any former major system or instructions, right? You, you open the Bible, there's no instructions. You mm. open the Talmud, there's no instructions. Mm. Okay. So there were many, many different avenues that Jewish meditation took along the generations. And we can talk about meditation in the Bible, meditation in the days of the Second Temple, meditation in the days of the, in the Middle Ages, meditation in early modernity, meditation in modernity, and there are all different, actually different kinds of meditation. So what you're saying is because there was no one central meditative tradition, unlike in some other traditions like yeah. Buddhism, it allowed for a certain creativity of expression and innovation um, for each generation to kind of make it up as they went along. Yes, and diversity. It's simply, it's very diverse, very s different systems. But even with that, you would say that it never, never became a central motif in Judaism. No, it never became a central motif. It, it of course, is never halakha. You're not commanded to do it. Right. And indeed, uh, some Jewish strands even uh, looked down upon meditation or said it was forbidden. So, so it's always on the periphery, uh, though maybe very important for those who are practicing it and maybe even granting them de creative developments that they later will bequeath Judaism and will continue to influence Judaism onwards, but, but the meditation itself is not central. Having said that, I will say that there are some certain um, communal traits that, that different systems of meditation in Judaism have. And, and those are, first of all, uh, that meditation usually in the Jewish tradition has something to do with language and the Hebrew language at that. Of course, the Holy Tongue, God's own language. So language... <laughs> takes a prominent part and the names of God hmm. written of course in Hebrew spoken in Hebrew also take a prominent part hmm. and then you've got a movement upwards hmm. okay meditation is towards God it's not inward usually it's usually upward either you are yourself traveling to upper realms or you are signaling up changing the world the worlds up there influencing the world that way with some important exceptions i'm assuming yeah of course i mean yeah there, there are always these exceptions but again you can count on jewish meditation usually to be that uh, and again always you can also notice uh, usually that the meditation has something to do with the law something to do with the mitzvot not always. There is a lot of anomic, as we, as it were, meditation not concerning the law, but a lot of it is based on or integrated into the halakha. Okay, got it. Some very rare is antinomic, mm. anti-halakha. This is Sabbateanism, etc. But but really, 
you know, very rare. The renegade uh, mystics. Yes. And uh, that, you know, but again, and also groups that in the end took off from Judaism right. into uh, another stream. Uh, that's generally the traits that you will find. Okay. So some of the core themes that we're going to find across mystical traditions yes. within Judaism. Yes. Now, if we want to look at Judaism itself, and maybe you should tell me, do you want me to start with the Bible? Because the Bible, because if we look at the Bible, we will notice that it's very hard to find meditation mm. in the Bible. And on the other hand, it's very easy to take all sorts of sporadic random verses and insert into them a meaning right. of meditation, saying, ah, Jacob went uh, to the field to pray. Ah, he actually performed meditation or right. such stuff. Right. So, and, and so, you want to talk a little bit about the Bible? I think that's an important point because I think that sometimes um, those that are familiar with with Jewish literature and the Bible, which is a very familiar text here in the West, uh, assume that the categories that they're using to think about their own religiosity are the same yes. categories happening there. Yes. And that you're saying is a mistake. The example that you gave of, of Jacob going to pray, right? That's already yeah. a two-step abstraction because in the text, he goes to speak in the field. Suach, yeah. And yeah. it's the rabbis who make that prayer and then us who make that meditation. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that would be that would be helpful to, if you could take us sort of from the Bible until today and just briefly talk about how you see that development taking place and what's not happening as well. Yeah, so, I mean, when I wanted to find meditation in the Bible, I initially said i'm not going to reinterpret or translate any verses into what i think should be meditation assuming that he must have meditated obviously because uh, right also there's a lot of talk about the prophets meditating right but when you look at the prophets actually you don't see any sign of meditation and quite the contrary you see that they are quite surprised when they have the revelation of mm. God. I mean, God speaks to them and, oh my God, like again, and sometimes they run away. Mm. It doesn't seem like a person who took a lot of time and effort to get to mm. that place mm. and who wants that revelation. Aren't there schools of prophecy that are, that are practicing and training for prophetic experience? Okay. So, apart from the usual prophets, the classical prophets that we have books of, there's another kind, another genre of prophets in the Bible, which are the Bnei Nevi'im, or the Nevi'im, which are of that type. And, and these are the Nevi'im that Chazal, that our sages later say, have schools of. They are not Nevi'im who come to the people and say, you have been, you have done wrong, repent, and you know, thus and thus is going to happen. Not such Nevi'im, not Yirmiyahu and uh, Ezekiel, etc., Jeremiah. These are prophets who we can see, for example, and this is a, a specifically one point where we can actually see meditation in the Bible, in Samuel A, first book of Samuel, uh, chapter 10. There Samuel sends Saul, who he has, he has just christened as king in private, to Givata Elohim, hill of God, where he will meet a band of Nevi'im prophets and prophesy with them. And Saul does this, he prophesizes, and he changes. He becomes another man, Ishachel. And, 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 and people look and say, oh, is Saul among the prophets? We didn't know, etc. And there you can discern also the method of meditation because, it, because Samuel says to Saul, you will see these people and they are coming off the Bama, the little um, uh, worship platform for worship, 
with a chalil v'kinor v'tof, with, with in, musical, musical instruments. instruments, with a flute and a, and a violin or a harp, really, and a, and a drum. So it is clear that music was used for the attain, attainment of a mystical or ecstatic state of, of uh, consciousness. And we know, by the way, uh, that such methods were used also by the Greeks mm. somewhere else in the Mediterranean right. at approximately right. that time. Right. So, so, I mean, it, we, it's pretty clear that this is the method that they used. Is there any term there in the biblical context um, that that would refer to meditation in there in in what's going on? No, there? there's no letargel to practice or anything like that. They just <laughs> prophesy. That's what they do. <coughs> so, by the way, and they, uh, by the way, they, so they <laughs> prophesy, and the spirit of God transcends on Saul. Okay. And a chapter later, you see why that's important because a chapter later, that's Nachasha Amuni sieging on uh, Yavesh Gilad, uh, some evil character. And the whole people, you know, when hearing about this, everybody starts to cry. And when Saul hears about this, and he is still a king in secret, mm. he becomes, that. no, the spirit of God enters him, he becomes angry, and he goes to war against Nachash, and, you know, he takes care of things. And so it's clear that the spirit of God gave him what nobody else mm. had, which is courage, mm. uh, initiative, etc., it's funny because usually you're the one playing this critical role, telling people what they think is happening in the Bible is not actually happening. And I want to yeah, press please, this point yeah, a bit further, please. which is why are, we, why are we making the assumption that they're partaking in meditative practice or having mystical experience? Maybe, there, maybe, there are, maybe those are assumptions that are being put into the text. They could just say that they're playing instruments and, uh, and the divine spirit rests upon them. Why, why is that meditative or mystical? Okay, well, that's a good question. That's a good question. I mean, you know, they're, they're saying they're prophesying, but yeah, why consider this mystical? I will... Or meditative. Or meditative. Let's, let's perhaps uh, define our... Uh, our, our The time has come. <laughs> our, our terminology. Meditation for me is any initiated practice meant to cause a change or transformation of consciousness in a way that is therapeutic, epistemological, or soteriologically beneficial for the practitioner. Epistemologic meaning you know something that you didn't know before. Therapeutic is, of course, a healing or well-conducing uh, well uh, state. And soteriological is a nice word for uh, redemptive. Salvific. Or Salvific, yeah. I'm going to put that on the screen because I know that's a definition that you've yeah. chewed very carefully and you've exactly. used yeah. very and precisely. This is what I use also in my dissertation and in my and book. And this, this is your own definition yes. in the field. You, you felt that there wasn't an adequate definition that's previously. Right. That's right. Uh, usually when you open books about meditation, even today, you will encounter definitions that talk about inward uh, um, inwardness inward um, getting uh, some calmness some uh, uh, states uh, of passivity uh, yeah pacific states mm -hmm. of contemplation mm -hmm. yeah no certainly those are meditative states or can be but there are a lot more ways to change your consciousness in ways that are religiously significant or theologically significant for you. You can fast. You can dance around the fire to the sound of drums. 
you can flagellate yourself, you can uh, uh, hyperventilate, you can say a mantra, you can do many, many different things that for me are certainly meditative. Those are all forms of meditation. Yes, definitely. And, and why? Because they are religiously significant. You are doing something um, voluntarily and with an intent to get closer to God, to uh, see something that is holy, to get a message from the divine, etc. Wonderful. So let's bring your definition then back to that verse with soul. Yeah. Saul is definitely changing his consciousness voluntarily and with will to a state that is for him, I would say, perhaps also epistemologically significant and uh, certainly redemptive in the way that it changes him. And the text says it changes Saul and in a way that is beneficial to save the entire people later, or, or even only Avesh Gilad, but as part of the greater people of Israel, right? Remember, redemption in the Bible is very political. Mm. It's not mm. a, an individual, mm. you know, mm. a, a saving. It's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a yeah. monarchy. It's, it's such a difficult task. I'm just thinking about this sort of the meta project that you're undertaking here to, to separate text in their in as, as best as we can get to the original context with the way that they're being read for thousands of years. And yeah. Judaism is commentaries on commentaries on commentaries. And I, I know that you know that in Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, this verse of soul becoming a new person is read in a very elaborate metaphysical context yeah. of this angelification. So it must be very difficult to put that all aside and to be like, okay, we're just going to look at the text in its original cultural linguistic context. Well, without yeah, Maimonides, without yeah, Rashi. Yes, but you know, I have the advantage of growing up secular. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't really immerse myself in helpful. those texts right. uh, when I was a child. That is yeah. helpful. Okay, so moving then, yeah. I, th there, may, there may be um, an assumption here that we can make that, and I'm curious to know what you think of it. And, and let's, let's, I think there's a lot of Jewish history to cover, so we have to continue yeah, moving. Yeah, yeah, of course. The, you're, you're saying that we don't see any explicit talk of meditation the way that you defined it. Um, these intentional uh, undertakings of mental or physical activity to bring about yeah. epistemological There's no instructions. No, There's no meditative instructions right. in the Bible. C can, we, can we assume, though, that if there are schools of prophets um, and we do see what you're identifying as, as meditation in those instances, yeah. that the prophets, what we might call the literary prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, that they are also partaking in their own meditation, just that it's not being explicit in the text? But I don't see why to assume that if they have their revelations without any preparation mm. and, and, and sometimes not only to their surprise, but to their dissatisfaction. Mm. Mm. Like, why wouldn't you assume that some meditative action had preceded that? Uh, so you're saying prophetic experiences can come to someone who has prepared for it or, and who hasn't prepared for it. But these are the different context. prophecies. These mm. are different prophets, mm -hmm. different types of prophets. There are the Jeremiah's, the Ezekiel's, the Isaiah's. These are one type of prophets that that are, you know, uh, reprimanding the people, give, bringing the message of God, etc. Mm -hmm. And there are these other kinds of prophets which don't have books written of them. And they are just ecstatic mm -hmm. uh, experiencers that get into this ecstatic state. Usually, by the way, research shows that they are connected to battles. Mm -hmm. Usually they are berserk mm -hmm. fighters mm -hmm. running into battle fanatically calling out the name of God, etc., mm. etc. So if, if we actually want a point of connection between, between these two genres, uh, it would be the prophet Elijah, mm. 
who was a prophet that something is written on him, and he was quite a character, obviously, I mean, and, and famous, but he was a fighter. You know, he fought idolatry mm. with a sword in mm. his hand, not uh, with words. Right, right, right. So that's that I would say is the interesting, connecting. interesting. Okay, so that's 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 the beginning. That's that's looking at some of the biblical prophets and your distinguishing between between the yeah. prophets that are that are coming to classically speak truth to power and their words being recorded yeah. for, and reprimand the people versus the people that are entering these ecstatic frenzies for yes. whatever religious or military purposes which are connected of course yes yes what happens when we move past the bible into apocryphus okay. pseudepigraphus second temple rabbinic literature what okay. do we see there something happens uh, along the time of the second temple before and after the destruction so we're talking first century and what happens is that the direction of redemption changes from somewhere in the distant future to somewhere in the distant upward mm. realms to somewhere up there mm. not out in the future mm. and there's a whole metaphysics that becomes common knowledge that w there are realms up above this world seven heavens as it were in which different angels and different forces and god finally also exist and live there as it were and this is not only jewish uh, but but as i said common knowledge uh, the gnostics have this in different forms christians you can see saint paul talking about ta being taken up to taken up to the third heaven there's this verse yes. and of course our first major real mystical system of Judaism, which is the Heichalot and the Merkava mysticism, developed in the early uh, centuries uh, CE and up until the 8th, 9th century, something like that. We have a collection of texts talking about celestial journeys and giving instructions how to conduct those journeys. So what we have there, and, and maybe first we'll talk about who's who's writing this text mm. because these are not our sages. Just to clarify, is this the person who dies in their soul ascends, or this is during one's lifetime? That's a fantastic question. It's certainly during the lifetime. Mm. The question is whether it is in the body or whether some sort of astral body or soul leaves the body mm. and ascends mm. to the heavens. Mm. It's a it's a question that I think the texts themselves do not decide upon mm. uh, i don't know if they even had a understanding of a difference between an inner entity and an outer body it's a question because for judaism this came a bit late at the 10th century <coughs> talks about soul etc so it's a good question but but but, but let's just yeah, come back yeah. to to who are these yeah. people now these people are not the sages they take the names of the sages rabbi akiva rabbi nechunia ben akana but they are not the sages. We know that the, the sages, the people who wrote the Talmud, backed away from them. They, they, they didn't think it was a good idea. They didn't think this was an endeavor that should be taken. They were people of Halakha. They thought the way to connect with the divine after the destruction of the temple is by praying and by studying Torah. Torah is what we have from the divine. These people thought differently. They thought that the destruction of the temple requires us to have a substitute temple. Mm. Not a temple on the ground, but a temple in the sky that we can 
pilgrim pilgrimage to we can make a pilgrimage to to a celestial temple <coughs> of sorts yes. and see god and remember yeah. this is what you came to jerusalem right. for to שלוש פעמים בשנה יראז כל זכורך. It's פני השם לקחה. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you see the face of God, really. Yeah, it's the, the, the Nikud is, of course, 10th century. You come to see the presence. The presence is, you don't, you don't actually go into the Holy of Holies, but it's there, and that's what you're there for. And they substituted that mm. for a celestial journey, um, uh, apparently. <coughs> Done in life, ah, your question also relates to the Gnostics. The Gnostics would say it's after you're dead. Mm. Once you're freed from your, <laughs> from your, yeah. your prison. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, they were not, yeah. so they were not dualists that way. Right. Our Safut HaMerkava Vaychalot. And so you ascend up, uh, you go through all the seven different... Uh, Can I just pause you yeah. for a second? You keep saying ascend. But as far as I understand, uh, your day, Merkava. <laughs> yeah, but this is a common misunderstanding. Your day, it's not... To descend. Yeah, it's not. Just to translate. In Hebrew, laredet, your day, it's to descend. Yeah, it's yeah. people who descend. Yeah. But it's all, it has another meaning. To laredet, your day, is also people going on a journey. Mm. Your day, yam, mm. is another word for sailors. Mm. Right? Your day, Mitzrayim. Yeah, your, yeah. yeah. And your day, uh, Duma, people who go for a journey to the dead, mm. to the to the mm. to Hades, mm. right? So these are the people who go on a journey. Got it. Upwards. Got it. Um, so how do they do it? We were given instructions, and usually it uh, has to do with reciting a certain secret name of the divine. We're talking a very long name, made of. A few, like, it's like 10 names that are um, considered one big secret name of God. It's like one German word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but really, yeah. And it's uh, uh, with usually all the different parts of it are ended with the word El. So like Yechezkel and, mm. and Gabriel and Michael, the angels, like that. So something El, something El, something El, something El. All this together is a name of the divine. Because, and at the end it has Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, the Tetragrammatron. It's clear that it is, it is the divine. And, and you are reciting that 112 times. That's the instructions in Heichalot Rabati, mm. one of the texts. You should be very careful not to do over 112 times, not to do under. Mm. It's a very particular name. It's clear that if you misinterpret, mis sorry, pronunciate something, you might be dead, you yes. know, <laughs> you might be killed for it. Yes. The stakes are high. stakes are very high. You go up, you have to remember the names of four angels in each heaven, two to the left of the door, two to the right of the door. Each heaven has its own angels. You need to know, ah, you are this and this L, you are thus and thus L, you are this, you are this. If you don't, it's like a password if you don't. Mention their names, you're, you're dead. And at the seventh heaven, you have a vision of the divine sitting on the throne. Uh, it's it's like it's it's. There are like very poetic, magnificent descriptions of seeing the divine there, and you're uh, just in a gush of feelings and emotions. You're reciting different names of the divine. And, and so that's the epitome of the journey. 
And usually you also get something. You get a little magic spell or you get a little knowledge of the future. You get something. Some souvenirs. Yeah, to, to, to take down with <laughs> you. From the gift store. It's, it's considered totally. It's and, and, you know, we should watch out not to interfere here with the Protestant devaluation of magic mm. that we as living in a Protestant culture take upon ourselves. There was no devaluation of magic. Magic is important. It's real and serious. Yeah, yeah. like doing stuff in the world with knowledge you got from God is fantastic. That's what is good. It's yeah. a Jewish mystic does stuff. Yeah. yeah. He, he helps his community. Right. He they bring yeah. the rain if they need to. Yeah, exactly. And we, it's important. We, we, made it, so, we may need a mystic to hold the rain. <laughs> Listen to yeah. So, so, so it's not like you're there only for your own, you know, specific right. magnificent vision. You're also there for the whole community. Right. <clears throat> which, which, which adds maybe something to your definition of meditation, which is not just that it's personally salvific, but it also has implications for the broader cultural context that one yes. is living in. Yes, almost always also. Maybe we should add that as a, a running trend in Jewish, within in, Jewish right, meditation. Right. It's not only for yourself. Right. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of um, very famous Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey. Yeah. He has his t- his, the, the steps on the clock and the yeah. last one is to bring back the bounty to, to the original place where they yeah. left from. There's yeah. maybe a similarity there. You know, it's interesting because you've clearly spent so long with these texts in such an intimate way that Sorry. it's almost like um, it's almost like you're speaking from experience. Like you went up <laughs> yourself and you hung out with the angels, and you're like, uh, "Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't." Okay. Just to make, <laughs> I, 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 I will tell you something. The first time I taught this, I I read the text and I read all the names of the angels out loud for my students, mm-hmm. and quite a short time afterwards, I became coarse. <laughs> I, like, I couldn't speak. <laughs> and that was the last time I read those uh, names uh, out loud. <laughs> so, but but that's the, 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 that sums up my experience reciting those names. That was, that was the warning shot. Yeah, you're saying, you're saying Tomer, yeah. watch yourself. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, from, from your intimate knowledge of these texts and from your own engagement with them and study of them, do you have a sense of whether these 112 times that, that this very elaborate, complex name of God is recited, is that being done magically, theurgically, mantraically, meditatively, if those distinctions are viable at all. No, so it's, you know, we, on, we can only conjecture, we can only guess, but yes, if looking at this from a meditation research point of view, I would say that this is used as a type of mantra that demands both a very good memory, because also you need to rem- remember the names of the angels, and very good concentration. Right, you're reciting a very uh, elaborate name of the divine, 112 times. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's and and you're so it's an, a lot of mental effort that you're putting into this, and again from a very scientific point of view, it brings you into a state of trance of sorts. I would say. Yeah, there's there's going to be physiological activity if you're if you're undertaking that kind of acti- you know certainly neurological right. activity. Something happens. Right. His let's let's bracket the metaphysical question of 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 where they're actually going and and what they're actually encountering and, right. and what's really happening and let's let's focus on the psychological or the phenomenological as far as we can tell what do you think is where where are these mystics we can call them where yeah. where of of the that are depicted in the heichalot and merkava literature where what is happening to them where are they going what's what 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 can we what can we determine okay I believe for them, first of all, there was no separate soul from the body. 
as our sages also believed, uh, a person is uh, constructed or, or built or, I don't know, created of three elements from the father, from the mother, and from God. God breathed the breath of life into a person, but, but it's not a soul that's separate. It's it just something that makes it live. And what they thought, I think, was uh, that they are that they are going on a journey. Uh, if we leave metaphysics aside, obviously it happened mentally. Uh, they were totally immersed in it and were able to experience it as though they were actually living it. It was a sort of a lucid dream. Uh, again, very meticulously relegated or, or regimented it was not a free-for-all. They couldn't simply fly to the sky. They knew where they were going into. It had to do with a lot of memory and a lot of concentration. And if they were able to keep up some sort of memory and, uh, and concentrative effort, they were rewarded by this extreme experience of you know, divine vision. If there is something similar to this in different traditions, in another tradition, I think we need we might do well to compare it to the Kalachakra ritual of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. In it, elder Buddhist monks, Tibetan Buddhist monks, enter into this mandala that they have uh, built, but enter it mentally with instructions from the Dalai Lama. They are, as it were, going through the mandala. And it's a sort of initiation that is supposed to you know, yeah, get him closer to nirvana or whatever, okay? So there is this structure of concentric squares or circles that you enter and go through and beneficially, and, and it's beneficially, uh, you know, uh, for you. Mm. I'm curious, I, that's, that's a rich, it's a helpful comparison. I know that there are later Jewish <laughs> authors who are reading these journeys as internal journeys, as psychological journeys. Mm. Um, it's interesting. If you take the Talmud mm. in the it's a, in Chagiga, and you see Rashi says, went up to the heavens by a name, using a name. So Rashi obviously knows about this mm. technique, right? But if you look at a Tosfot, they say, Alula Shamaim, no, Ishtamshu Beshem, something like that. Avalo Alu Elahayanidmelaim Shalu. So they didn't actually go to the heavens, but it would seem to them as if they went to the heavens. So the Tosfot take effort to sort of correct Rashi and say, look, don't think this is an actual physical journey. This is just a mental journey. That's quite interesting. That seems to be quite a modern psychologizing read yeah, on the text. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, Tosfot, just to be clear for the audience, is not writing in the 21st century. Tosfot no. is, is 30. When are they writing? No, but, but yeah, it's Middle yeah, Ages, 12, 12, 13. 13. Yeah. But for the Tosfot, Judaism has already integrated the idea of a separate soul and an internal dimension to a person. Mm. Rashi has not yet, or not yet completely. So for them, it is clear. The minute you have an idea of a soul, a pure, heavenly, eternal entity that you really are, 
the body becomes secondary, even something, uh, you know, uh, derogative. That right? transition happens so quickly between Rashi and Tosfot. They're just a generation or two apart. I, I can only say, you know, this is, this is the text. <laughs> I don't know. They're, they're two generations apart. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and yes, I, I mean, we know that Sadia Gaon, for example, 10th century, yeah. also already is like the Tosfot. He also says, no, mm. no, it's not mm. a real journey. Mm. It's, so it's about that time that these ideas enter Judaism. Rashi might not have been convinced by them, right, maybe have right, not heard of right, them. Right, we don't know. Right. But anyway, that is the time <clears throat> that Judaism incorporates that idea. And we know that obviously that idea is pronounced, uh, is very pronounced in Kabbalah. Kabbalah already right. has a soul, different right. soul. So we'll get to there in a second. But yeah. I'm just curious before we move on, and I do, I do want to move on. As a scholar reading these texts with a broad understanding of the historical and literal and cultural <clears throat> context, how much do you think these like, say, the readings of people like Tosafot and Sajagon, Sajig- and <clears throat> how much are they doing violence to the text in their original context, and how much are they being true to the text? What's your sense on that? I don't know. It's a, it's a funny question, you know, I have to say, because, I mean, Judaism always takes a text. I mean, this is the Jewish tradition, taking a text and, and reinterpreting it, right, isn't it? Right, So, I mean, I, 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 I certainly wouldn't use the word violence. And, and I mean... If you ask me, yeah, I mean, uh, Sadia Gaon and uh, the Tosfot are not looking at the text the way the original authors looked at them. The original authors thought they were ascending with the body or with a sort of a body. It's, it's a, we can argue about it, but, but so they're interpreting it differently, but, you know, that's what Jews right, do. Right, sure, <laughs> certainly, yeah. Violence maybe is, in our tradition is the wrong word. It's a... It's much more of a dance, perhaps, between texts. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm, I'm curious for myself, and I'm, and maybe we don't have to dwell on this for a long time. But you seem to have a fair degree of certainty on authorial intent, which is something that modern thinkers tend to uh, be more skeptical and dubious of. You know the, yeah. How do you how do you uh, how do you say how do you say with such confidence that this is what they were thinking when they wrote it? Look, first of all, again. It's not that I know, it's that I assume. Mm. But, but reading a lot of texts, you get some sense of what a person, uh, what a person means. I mean, if they thought they were traveling via the, th- the soul, leaving the body on earth, w- they would write it, right? W- I mean, why wouldn't they simply say, and then your soul uh, exits your body and... and it's not written. Gotcha, gotcha. And 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 we have also the the uh, a certain piece of evidence from Saint Paul, as I said. He says, "I know of a person who was taken right. to the third right. heaven." He, right. he means himself, right. whether in the body or out of the body, I do not right. know. And this person, whether in the body or right. out of the body, I don't know, was beheld some very secret secrets or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So Saint Paul himself, right. speaking about himself, is at a loss whether he was taken to the third heaven in the body or out of the body. And and so it also gives us another, you know, piece of another clue right. that these people thought they were going up in the body. And St. Paul is, is a Hellenistic Jew. And that's why for him the soul is already a mm, factor, mm, etc. Mm, uh, there are some scholars like Siegel and I think Wolfson follows him in this that he reads that actually as a Merkava quotes you know text in in its in that fragment and and maybe the first such uh what saint paul yeah 
Yeah. As a Merkava. Yeah, as a Merkava experience. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I, this is the, it's the same metaphysics. Right. That's right. what I'm saying. Right. This, this is common knowledge. Right. There's, there are heavens, right. God sits right. there, angels. And then if you're St. Paul, you also know that metaphysics. And if you have a, a fantastic mystical experience, you right. interpret it by those right. metaphysics. We have to remember as well that now he's St. Paul. But back at home, he was Shoal of Tarsus. Yeah. And so he's, it's, not, it's, exactly. it's not some Christian guy writing. It's a Jewish oh, guy yeah. writing, right? Yeah, it's this Jewish, the, a Purushi, right. halachically yeah. Jew, yeah, yeah, yeah. a halachic Jew, assumingly yeah. learning from Rabban Gamliel. Yeah. We don't know, right? But, you know. Again, a need to separate what we now think of people and what may have yeah, happened. Yeah. So you've taken us uh, very beautifully up until the 10th century. Thank you. I hope my questions haven't been um, too... To uh, to acerbic or critical, I hope it's I hope it's no, been helpful. Okay, good. Okay, okay. wonderful. So, what's the next great trend in Jewish mysticism? So we know that Jewish meditation, rather. During, I mean, okay. So, no. So I will answer your first question. <laughs> okay. The next great trend in Jewish mysticism is, of course, Kabbalah. Kabbalah okay. that surfaces in the 13th century, and there's the Zohar, and there's the Sfirot, and everything. But it's not really the next great phase of Jewish meditation. Mm. Because if you look at the first Kabbalistic texts, we're talking about south of France, north of Spain, 12th, 13th century, Sefer Bahir, Girona, Mekubalim, these yeah. groups, the Zohar, you don't really see a lot of mystical experiences or meditation. There are some, I'm not saying there's entirely not, but there certainly is not a system there, not people who are saying, do this and then you will, nothing like that, not instructions. And, and so classical Kabbalah at that stage really doesn't offer us something uh, that we can really write home about. Mm. What you do have in that time and a bit before is, first of all, Maimonides, who if you look at chapter 51, third part of Guide to the Perplexed is, I think, very clearly teaching meditation, teaching a sort of concentrative, contemplative meditation. It seems so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And his student, uh, Rabbi Avram Abulafia, living in Italy in the 13th century and taking Maimonides, connecting his system with Sefer Yetzirah, and really giving us, I would even say, the, the most complete systematic system of meditation in, Jewish, in the Jewish tradition until the 20th century. Wow. Yeah. Abu Lafia lays it out very explicitly, systematically. You do this and this and this, and this happens or this happens, mm. and then you do this mm. and then you do this. Mm. In very particular meticulous instructions for how to meditate and according to Abu Lafia, how to attain prophecy. Right. We, can we add though that uh, besides being the most comprehensive meditation system, which I would like to hear more about in a moment, bridging, taking from Sef Yitzhah, from Maimonides, from Chassidi Ashkenaz as well, from many, many sources, mm -hmm. also outside of Judaism and quite open about that. Uh, can we add also that it's one which is um, still being practiced today or even being revived today in contemporary Jewish spirituality? Oh, yeah. So Abulafia has had a very great revival, resurgence in the 20th century. We need to know that he was excommunicated, basically. Yeah. 
uh, from the time he lived till the 20th century, I mean, for some he still is, his books were never been, have never been printed before the 20th century. And, and it, but he was very influential and indeed take any book by Edel and Edel will show you how whatever you're reading is connected <laughs> yes, to Abu Lafia. Yes. Uh, but no, but he was a very influential Kabbalist yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, even though he was excommunicated as said. And right. again, he gave, he laid out a very systematic method for meditation. Yeah, it's maybe one of the greatest comebacks in the history of Jewish mysticism, we could say. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Him and I would say he gets some competition from Breslov, who who uh, have also come uh, back from you know uh, from a very small right, right. to right. Uh, to I mean, to a cultural phenomenon that's crazy. Interesting, interesting. I know I know you've done some work as well, along with some other researchers uh, like Jonathan Jonathan Gabb on contemporary forms of Jewish spirituality. But so maybe we'll sort of make our way to that yeah. slowly. And and of course, <clears> this is all part of one big story. Could you could you open us up a little? What is happening in the meditative tradition of Abu Lafia, and then and then from there we'll move back okay. into the Kabbalists. So Abu Lafia, in 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 short, uh, gives us a system of reciting or um, articulating the name of God, different names of God, by the way, incorporating into that breathing exercises and even hishtachvuyot, uh, um, prostration, prostrations. Uh, between each name, between different parts of the name, etc. All that in a, in, a, in a very long meditative practice that culminates, as we said, in, in what he, he believes is prophecy and is, it's like seeing a divine vision and also getting a message from God. So that's Abu Lafia. And he has a few iterations of, you know, different um, ways of... Um, practicing these different different names of God, etc. Okay? So this is Abu Lafia. Uh, and again, Kabbalah doesn't offer us anything close to that. Let me just ask you a quick <coughs> question before we get back to Kabbalah. Yeah, Abu Lafia, you're describing a system that's uh, very complex in its linguistic as an element of it, which has been studied a lot. You're also bringing, there's an embodied component to it. Yeah, definite embodied component. Right. Breathing and, right. and physical uh, prostration. Right. And it's something which I've seen is very important for you in your research to bring the embodied component. And, and I'd like to speak about that when we talk about methodology. Okay. Um, how much, just, just very quickly, in terms of Abu Lafia's influences, how what how much is, what truth is there to to the to the claim that Abulafi is being influenced by forms of yoga or other forms of of Sufi meditation? What what do yeah, you, what do you think? Yeah, if anything, about? I would say Sufi meditation. And I mean, I, I think it's you know it's not hard to imagine that he was influenced by this and that. Um, these things were known. People shared knowledge. It was not taboo to you know dabble in other traditions it's i mean i think today the borders between traditions are much mm. stricter than they mm. were and there's no reason to believe he didn't he wasn't influenced having said that though his method is pretty original mm. i mean so he might have taken from yoga something about the breathing let's say and he might have taken from the sufis mentioning of god's name but putting this all together i mean if he even had, he put things together in such an original way that you know, you just found find nowhere else. Mm. It, he's a he was a brilliant, brilliant man, you know, very pretentious also, uh, thinking maybe he was a messiah, mm. the messiah. Sorry, and and so, but but it, it, you know, we need to give him credit for for what he gotcha. deserves. Got you. 
let's let's move then back into the Kabbalists. What do we find in the Kabbalists by way of meditation? Okay, so when we get to Lurianic meditation, um, Kabbalah, sorry, this we're talking 16th century and onwards, this is where we find actual serious systems of meditation. First and foremost, the Kavanot and the Yehudim, um, you know, instructions for how to manage, how to manipulate, how to join together in your mental space names of the divine, the Tetragrammaton with the Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud name. And, and uh, this is the, the, the most simple matching, of course, and there are many, many different names. Doing so while praying mm -hmm. and having done so, influencing the whole upper body of the celestial spherot, the centers, the power centers of the divine, and thus allowing divine affluence to ascend, to descend and enrich us all. Right? And so you have that, you have, so you have um, um, Yehudim and Kavanot, you have Yehudim, sorry, Kavanot, which you do during prayer, Yehudim usually you do... Can you just translate those words for, for, the, for the audience? Yeah, so Kavanot is like... Um, Intentions, intentions, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you basically, it's a um, intentional stance which you take towards the names of God and towards influencing the spherot. You are praying and you intend to, and thus you join the names of. And that would be the second word, which is Yehudim, which is to to unify or to join. Yeah, Yehudim is unifications. Got it. Got it. You unify different parts of God. The whole premise in Kabbalah is that. The, the body of God or the, 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 the God's existence is, is separated into, into different centers and they are not um, particularly or they're not rightly aligned and unified. Right. And, and the Kabbalist's job is to unify and align those right. in order for the world to work and finally get redeemed. Right. So this is the great Lurianic myth of Shira and Tikkun that the divine itself has been fractured and yeah. the masculine and the feminine have been torn apart and whatever yeah, it is yeah. and we're trying to bring that rectification exactly. i want to ask a similar question that we asked earlier when we were speaking about the um the merkava <laughs> mystics um which is and and i know that this question is particularly important to your research because you do a lot of work looking at the way that older forms of meditation are being reread in modern contexts sometimes legitimately and sometimes yeah. illegitimately when so the way that you described uh, the Lurianic form of meditation now um, in very medieval terms that there's some sort of divine realm and and through our yeah. magical words we can create some effect what we may call theurgy and do terms that no one in <clears throat> the 21st century are yeah. really going to be uh, besides or maybe a handful of Kabbalists um, are really going to be connecting with in, in any real way I'm, I'm, I'm just curious um, let me let me try something and you tell me whether it's legitimate or illegitimate Luria sees the primary role to reunite, let's say, Kutcha uh, and Shechina, the masculine yeah. and feminine. Yeah. Shechina, uh, the, the feminine, the goddess, which emerges from the Zohar and Sefer Abahir, uh, is identified uh, often at times with the, 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 the ecclesia of Israel, Knesset Yisrael, the, the, the collection of, of, of the souls yeah. of the Jewish people. So in some way, <clears throat> when he's uniting 
these two aspects of God, and, and the terminology is moving around all the time yeah. there, this, you know, but often describing the same unification in different language, Zan, um, Nukfa, and Bina, and Malchus, whatever it is, how is because he's identifying as soul of Israel, which is part of the Shekhinah, is he not identifying with that feminine aspect and therefore uniting himself with the masculine in that unification? Which means that it's not just something above and beyond that he's bringing together, but he himself is being changed and being united in that experience? Oh, no doubt about it. Okay. There are clear texts that show that. Let's, let's, let's put this in order. The first imperative of the Kabbalists is to rectify the upper worlds. This is Tikkun Olam. Okay, that's what they do. That's what they're here for. But... The upper world is the macrocosmos for their own microcosmos. They are changing anytime something changes up there, and anytime they change, something changes up there. It's, uh, there's a resonance flowing all the time. There's alignment all the time between upper and lower, the person here and the persona of God there. And it's very clear from the text. When you do this and this, you rectify that, but you also are filled with the, uh, the divine spirit and yeah, and you yourself are connected to your root. And No doubt about got it. it. Got it. Yeah. So uh, just to, but it's important. I mean, there is truth in what you said in the way that it's, it's less important for them. Maybe I mean, you know, what, what differentiates them maybe from, modern-day mystics, is that it's not their first imperative to go through a spiritual process and become enlightened or realize liberation. Or That's not what they do. What they do is rectify the world. But, yes, they are mystics. They do, I mean, something happens to them. Got it. So, so what, I, what I hear you saying is that there is, there is ways that these medieval practices could be read in a modern context that wouldn't be entirely delegitimate to them itself, although their emphasis may not have been where the modern person's emphasis is. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, look, let's, let's you know, take a very clear example, if I'm allowed to. The Kabbalah Center or the Bnei Baruch movement, you know, both neo-Kabbalistic movements today, I don't think they're not legitimate. They can do whatever they want. Jews reinterpret texts. That's what we do. But... If you, if you look at what they are studying and what they are practicing, it's not classical Kabbalah and it's not Lurianic Kabbalah because at the end, they are not interested first and foremost in rectifying the world, but in rectifying themselves in an inner spiritual process. Was there an inner spiritual process in Lurianic Kabbalah at least? Yes. It, it was never the primary goal and it was never everything you talked about Indeed, you talked very little about that and a whole lot about rectifying the upper worlds. Open any book of Kabbalah, Luria's, Etz Chaim, or Chaim Vital's Etz Chaim, or Cordovero's uh, Pardes Rimonim. Or... Open these books. What are they writing about? They're writing 200 pages of how to, uh, you know, unite this Firah and this Firah, and you do this mitzvah, and uh, etc. And they're writing a page about getting the Holy Spirit or experiencing this and that. Right, That's right. the ratio. Right, right. I hear that. Let me play, let me play <laughs> devil's advocate here for the modern mystic. And you can tell me that I'm just uh, 
Hasidic kid who grew up in a Hasidic community, and therefore I'm reading these texts through my own lens, as we inevitably are. Which community, by the way? Chabad. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't, if you haven't picked up already, I could have guessed. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> for these mystics, when you say that they're rectifying the world, um, I assume you mean the spiritual world, the olamot, the divine world, right, the divine world. Yeah. Um, they're not. They're not. They're not uh, sending food packages to Haiti. Yeah. Right. That's right. So, they're they're also. In their own theosophy, metaphysics, they're identifying their own internal world with the divine world. And those two things are seen as mirror images to one another. Yeah, this is an definitely. idea which goes back even before the Kabbalists, right? right? So can we say that that ratio that you're distinguishing between fixing the divine world versus what happens to the self is maybe drawing the line at an artificial place? Because if they're seeing the divine world as just a mirror of the inner world... That's right. Yes, yes, definitely it's not... For them, it's not separate worlds. There are no clear line between what we today call subjective and objective parts of reality. It's all one, you know, one flowing uh, continuation. Yeah, continuum. Yes, but again, I I I read the texts and I see what interests them what concerns them what they're worried about and it's not their inner life usually i mean yeah also but first and foremost the world the but maybe that's how they're speaking about their inner life okay so i mean look first of all they are concerned with their inner life. i don't want to belittle this too much like rabbi yosef caro rabbi chaim vital talked endlessly about you know they wrote diaries yeah so yes but again kabbalah as a system is not concerned about the Kabbalist, but about the upper spherotic world. Now, were they talking about the spherotic world, but actually meaning inner worlds? You know, how, how can you prove this or disprove it? It's just, I mean, you know, I can't, I mean, how can I defend my position? You know, maybe? Right, right. I mean, I guess, I guess the way to, <clears throat> to prove it sometimes would be to see authors that are saying, uh, when we speak about Olamot yeah. Elyonim, we're actually speaking about... And who did that? The Hasidim right, did. Right. The Baal Shem Tov right, did. Right. The Magid of Mezrich right. did. When the Magid of Mezrich, or Reni Yaakov Yitzchak of Polnoy, write about the Sfirot, they explicitly say, listen, it's all in you. It's all inside the person. It, don't you know, bother yourself about the upper worlds. Bother yourself about your own transformation. They're saying it. Doesn't Cordovero say the same thing now? Who? Cordovero? Ramak? I don't think so. No? Okay. I don't think so. This, <laughs> we'll have to check later. <laughs> I will. But this is the Hasidic revolution. This is the Hasidic Copernican revolution, right, as right. it were. Got it. You know, putting things upside or, or right side up or upside down or... Inside out. <laughs> inside out, really. Yeah. Taking everything that was up there yeah, and yeah. out there and internalizing it and being concerned about yeah, our yeah. own transformation which, which in your own research you say is part of a modern revolution in, in exactly not just no but just right. to, just to just to close the other subject i think that if rabbi chaim vital or rabbi moshe cordovero or the ari would have wanted us to think about our inner worlds they would have written it okay simply just as the maggid writes i'm gonna check my notes okay whoever's right buys the other person shots of course Got it. <laughs> Yalla. <laughs> okay, so that brings us to the close of the uh, Lurianic, the, 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 okay. the great renaissance. Um, let's move now into Hasidut proper. We've laid the groundwork. Unless you'd like to say a word about Shabtaot, about some of the heretical... Is there any yeah, oh, important meditation happening there? Maybe. I mean, I mean, obviously, there are 
many interesting things done in Shabtaut, but I, I mean, we, I don't think we need to go into it. I think the amount of influence it had uh, over the Jewish meditative tradition after it was not great. Uh, you know, we've got Frankism, but it's not really... Got it, got it. Yeah. So why don't we move... But, but Shab Sabbatianism is one of the ways that Lurianic Kabbalah developed from the 16th century onwards. We had Sabbatianism. We had Lurianic Kabbalah being Lurianic Kabbalah. You still have Lurianic Kabbalists in the world. You know, studying Chaim Vital, Rabbi Chaim Vital. If you go to uh, Rehovot Anahar or Beit El Yeshivas here in Jerusalem, that's what they do. Mm. But they are a very small minority yeah. of, yeah. of yeah. Jewish, the Jewish people and Jewish mystics today. And you have Hasidism. Yeah. Let me ask you one nerdy question before we get to the major uh, revolution of Jewish spirituality, uh, the only mass movement of Jewish spirituality um, in modernity and perhaps ever, Hasidism. Before we get to there, there is a certain stream. That, there are many uh, streams that emerge from Lurianic Kabbalah. One of them um, is the Sarugian Kabbalah, um, particularly as it's picked up by people oh, like mm -hmm. Herrera and others uh, in its very much intermingled with an Italian form of Kabbalah which according to Idel's research and others, is very distinct from the Spanish in that the Spanish is much more mythological and the Italian is much more um, mm -hmm. philosophical and also much more perennial. They're engaging in the perennial tradition and they're influencing people like Pico and Ficino. Uh -huh. um, do, you, do, you, do you have anything to share on the meditative traditions amongst the Sarugian Italian philosophical Kabbalists? Because they're some of my favorite, those perennialists are my oh, favorite Kabbalists. I'm, I'm, so I'm sorry to disappoint you. The truth is I simply don't know enough about them. Okay. I don't think they had any prominent meditative techniques uh, and I didn't investigate them thoroughly. Okay. I very much appreciate you saying that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, there's, there's intellectual honesty in saying it's, I don't know. And, uh, and I, the, the Talmud says the person should teach their tongue to say and then you know, yeah, yeah, when you need uh, to say, uh -huh. you say. Let's move then to uh, the great revolution of Jewish mysticism, Eastern Europe, circa 1800s. The Balshamtiv and his yeah. descendants. I think first we need to say that what we have in Hasidism is the first modern Jewish renewal movement, okay? or first modern Jewish spiritual, major Jewish spiritual movement. That's what we have. Hasidism lays emphasis on the individual, on the individual's inner life, on the individual's voluntary actions and 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 intentions on the heart, on the experience, everything that we today recognize as modern, the modern subject really is born, let's say, right, with Hasidism in Judaism. And, uh, and, so, and, so, uh, and, so, and so it's a great revolution. And it's not a surprise that what the Hasids do with Kabbalah is change the way we perceive it completely. They internalize the whole, you know, amazingly intricate paraphernalia of the Sfirot into the single individual person, and then they lay emphasis on an inner transformation, right? With that radical shifting to the, to the <clears throat> modern subject that's happening with Hasidism, what, uh, what forms of meditation emerge okay. in that tradition? So... In my book, I write about two major Hasidic courts. I, I write about Chabad and I write about 
Braslav. Both are very prominent today, very influential today, and I think both, even if, not, if, they, even if they were not so influential today, even objectively, they present us with very intricate and systematic, I mean, spiritual worlds and meditative techniques. If we take the Chabad court first, um, first of all, let me say, and I hope you, it's not because who you are, I think Chabad presents the, the most fantastically brilliant jewel of a mystical system in the Jewish tradition. It's just a diamond that is, you know, sanded meticulously from all its side. <clears throat> it's amazing. It's, it's the most non-dual Jewish system, if we're talking about non-dualism. And it's very complex, very intricate, and very interesting. And and with Chabad, we've got that uh, Morazaken, Rabbi Zalman Shneur Miladi, and we've got two of, of his prominent students, Rabbi uh, Aaron of Sarashelia, uh, <coughs> and of course his son, Admor Emtsei. And he develops the first uh, phase, let's say, <coughs> of the meditative technique uh, with uh, the... Uh, it's it's a lot about um, mentally picturing the ways in which the divine descends and animates towards us via you know very intricate levels of uh, emanation. We need to picture that. We need to be enthralled in that to come to a certain ecstatic enthusiasm. And enthusiasm in which we not do not even understand that we are there. We don't. We we need to lose self consciousness. Self consciousness as you know, meaning being conscious of ourselves, but not consciousness in general. And and we finally um, are unified with the divine. Uh, I mean, in the end, it is a process of self nullification. And unification with the divine. I think that Morazaken uh, said, uh, mm. you know, The root of idolatry is imagining ourselves as something. As a separate entity. <laughs> as an God. entity. As an actual entity. <laughs> We're not actual entities. We are all parts of the divine. We're on the same uh, uh, stream as the divine. And so that meditation goes there. What, um, what makes that a meditative tradition as opposed to a mystical tradition because I think most people hear that they're hearing mysticism they're not hearing meditation I th because I think it is a a very intentional method practice of getting into mystical states mm. that's what makes it meditation mm. it's you're doing it not only for learning or chanting or memorizing the divine process of emanation but to actually get into this enthusiastic mystical state would you say here that me meditation is falling under the umbrella of mystical practices right so th there's of course a, it is yeah how can it not i, I <laughs> like this is meditation yeah um it's mis it's a mystical practice usually yes usually people you know because no the reason why i asked that is because mysticism sorry meditation in a modern mindfulness context can can be separate from mysticism right oh ho ho okay no ho ho okay <laughs> <laughs> i don't think everyone i don't think everyone on the yoga mat that's oh, meditating okay. is yeah yeah <laughs> but this is of, of course a very modern or postmodern 
interpretation of these systems. This is taking the method, the technique, <coughs> sorry, of meditation, of Eastern types of meditation, and implanting it into our Western world for different reasons. So yes, most yoga practitioners or wellness or mindfulness practitioners don't expect to realize emptiness and become fully enlightened <laughs> they're not it just doesn't interest them they're not up for it and they want to improve their lives and to feel good yeah. feel better yeah so obviously it's a different context for these things but in their original you know right these practices and even then and i mean these practices were used and dedicated towards those goals and the buddha even warns against settling for less than full nirvana mm. you know because you reach a stage where you feel good so mm. you can just let it go right and and, and there's a, a, a explicit warning against it interesting interesting okay so so when <clears> the <throat> altar rabbi shner zamnav liadi uh, is meditating he's doing it explicitly for these mystical purposes um, and he's doing it in a way that's that you said is very integrated with a very rigorous and complex uh, yes. metaphysics and mysticism. You, there's two characters that you study in Chassidut primarily. Uh, that is Shneur Zaman of Liadi, the, the founder of the Chabad movement, and that is Rabbi Nachman ben Fega, right. the founder of the Breslin movement. Could you put those two in contrast to one another so we can get a sense of the diversity of the Hasidic experience? Oh, definitely. So first of all, if Rabbi Schneur lays a lot of emphasis, first of all, on learning, Rabbi Nachman doesn't. Rabbi Nachman is suspicious of the mind, suspicious of reason. Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Vladi, for him, reason is the path to God. Rabbi Nachman sometimes will say, throw out your brain, throw out your mind, just live, just experience. And, and then again, Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Vladi is a non-dualist. Everything is one. All is at the end the same thing, the same it. Rabbi Nachman, no, there is dualism. God is there. We are here. There is a halal panui between us. There is an empty space, as it were. That's a technical term he uses for a, a ring encircling the known universe that doesn't have God in it, because if God were there, the whole universe would have melted into God because the universe as it is, as it were, touches God. And so it just becomes God. And for Norbi Nachman, this is a very important thing because the, the great philosophical questions that we can't answer are from that halal panui, from that empty space. <clears throat> uh, that's why we have questions that are simply unanswerable. Like, uh, you know, um, uh, um, uh, contradictions between values or... Uh, what exactly why does god why is god uh, good but doesn't uh, heal all the sick or whatever right mm. and for rabbi Schneur zalman there's no questions that can't be answered everything can be answered there is a qu answer for everything and this unified vision of everything has everything included in it so there's a lot of contrast between them they are different characters with different theologies and indeed different interpretations of Lurianic Kabbalah because that's what they're doing, right? right, right. They're turning Lurianic Kabbalah into Hasidism, into different kinds right. of Hasidism. Right. I'm, I'm curious to ask specifically about Rabbi Nachman's meditative practices as they were in his day and as they were today, and that's something that you've written and lectured on extensively. I'm just curious first to 
curious first to ask the question on the theological point you make. Uh, I know you know this as well because I re- because I came across it in in one of your essays that there's a there's a certain well known Torah in Rabbi Nachman's Magen Opus, the Lukotei Maharan, which mm. is Torah fifty one, where over there his theology seems to be perhaps closer to a non dual, where the where the human subject loses their subjectivity and can yeah. unite with the uh, the, yes. the necessary being God. Would you say that that pushes him a little closer to the to the philosophical? Yeah, perhaps, though, you know, Rabbi Nachman wouldn't be afraid of a contradiction. Right, right. right. It's like yes, he talks about union mystica, a, a mystical union. Definitely, that's what he talks about. But of course, in other places, he says no. There's an impossible rift between us mm. and God. Mm. But for Rabbi Nachman, you know, the system is, doesn't have to be right. Totally it's part of the course. Yeah. So, but Rabbi Nachman, while he doesn't give us a <clears> systematic <throat> theology like Rabbi Shner Zalman, he gives us a lot of things. He gives us incredible storytelling, which is a an inc- incredibly novel no, genre. But, but there is a system of meditation. Oh, so that's that's the question that I'm leading oh, yeah, up to. Yeah. What is his meditation system? Okay. So, first of all, Rabbi Nachman instructed his followers to have an hour of hitbodidut, solitude, as it were, every day. So every day you have an hour of practice. Now, what do you do in that hour? Usually, the instructions is to talk to God, to lay your heart before God, to to cry, to beg, to whatever. But reading Rabbi Nachman, I think we can see that in its ideal, this hour of it should be a a course, a a practice that will take you into Unio Mystica, just like we just said, to, to a mystical union. And that, and for Rabbi Nachman, the system, if we can call it a system, is to develop a huge, deep urge and yearning for God, a deep, deep wish to be with God, a, a, a cry of anguish that we are separated from God, that turns into an emotional gush that simply takes over us, and we are crying and yelling and know begging and 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 it is such ex- an ecstatic um practice that you lose yourself you forget yourself and rabbi nachman uh, delineates how one by one your different traits fall mm. from you first your negative traits mm. lust envy whatever pride then your positive traits mm. also mm. fall from you your your intelligence mm. and your let's say your humility mm. everything falls away and you yourself fall away, mm. you are nullified, and you are united with your root. This is Rabbi Nachman's language. You are united with your root, or you are united with the imperative existent, which is God. God is has to be there. We don't have to be here, but God has to be we're, there. We're the contingent. Yeah, we are contingent, right? And and that's it. And you're there. You're, mm. you're, you're unified. And Rabbi Nachman says this is very dangerous. Mm. It can even cost you your life. Mm. You are you're, you're hanging by a thread. Right. There's no guarantee that if you lose yourself, you're going to find yourself yeah. <laughs> in the in the checkout process. Yeah. I mean, we know that Rabbi Nachman himself and the group that surrounded him were very radical people. These were strange people, outcasts, outliers, people that that didn't get get well with others, and they made a group around Rabbi Nachman. They were very talented, obviously. And so this is a radical practice for a radical group of people. Right, right. And indeed, when you look at what most Braslav Hasids do from there and today, 
they definitely don't, you know, hang by a thread from death, crying, weeping, and yelling to unite with God. That's not what happens. Hmm. I'm sure there are... I'm sure there are individuals within oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and groups that are doing that. Right? But, you know, but, but, but if you look at Braslev instructions. Right, sort of pop Braslev. It's not only pop Braslev. Most of Braslev is pop Braslev. You know, okay. most of Braslev today is not descendants of the families that are Braslev Hasids for the last 200 years. Most of Braslev is BT, Jews, Ballet Tshuva, um, <clears throat> I'm, and I'm talking like, I don't know, 70, 80% of Braslev is people who came into Braslev over the last 30 years, let's say. And they've, or they've already raised their families in Braslev, but, but they're, you know, and, you know, they dress like Hasidic Jews, but they're not, you know, uh, of that heritage. Got it, got it. And there's no a single Admol... There's no single tzaddik in, in the Braslev community. Rabbi Nachman is dead and he has no uh, you know, f- uh, successor. Their rabbis, when they tell them how to do hitbodedut, how to practice hitbodedut, they don't say, weep until you're ecstatically almost dead. Right, right. They do something else. Right, it's a bit, it's a bit harder to sell. It's, not, yeah, it's, not, it's not so harder to the sell. Market. They don't want their communities to experience such earth-shattering moments mm. of ecstasy. Mm. It's not for the balabite, you know. Right. It's not for the normal Jew that has a has to get up to work tomorrow. Right, right. Which which is which is, you know, markedly different from what Rabbi Nachman Rabbi Nachman's radicality and outsidership wasn't just happenstance. It was cultivated, yeah. right? Definitely. I mean, there's the famous sentence by Rabbi Nachman says, yeah, he says like. כן, אתם יהודים כשרים, אבל לא כך רציתי. רציתי שתהיו כחיות הנוהמות כל הלילה ביער, כן? Like, you're, yes, you're kosher Jews, you're good Jews, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted you to be like animals howling all night in the forest. What an image, <laughs> what a great image. I what mean, this image. is Rabbi Nachman, yeah, right? Yeah. So, I have, I have kind of, we've, we've given this very panoramic, broad um, retrospective on, on Jewish meditative practices from the Bible until today. I'm curious, I have two follow-up questions. One of them is going to be for more of a general re- listener, and the one is a question to you. The first is, if, and maybe this, maybe you don't feel comfortable answering this as a scholar, and you're not here to teach people how to meditate necessarily, I don't know. <laughs> if, 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 if today someone that's living within the Jewish practicing tradition would like to go back to a moment in Jewish history and, uh, and pick a meditative tradition that could work for them, do you have any recommendations saying, that's, that's a good place for you to start? I'll tell you, one of my very deep-held understandings about our world is that it is different in a very fundamental way from the world even 200 years ago. Mm. We are different. We are different subjects. We are modern or postmodern subjects. Our individuality is different. Our understanding of autonomy is different. Our understanding of freedom, of conscience, of morality of authority is different in a very fundamental way from Jews and definitely other people 200 years ago. So it's hard today to go back and pick out (coughs) a method that would be good for people today. Hmm? I just felt it. Um, So the question was... Aren't we going to tell our viewers that we're in because of the rain outside? Oh, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) We uh, we just had to uh, 
snap yeah. our fingers and teleport inside. That's right. What we did was we uh, we practiced some very ancient meditative tradition, which is not for publication. Which we can't share. I'm sorry. But somehow we changed our entire place, and it's a um, <laughs> a, a, pract a practicing Jew today that's looking to get into Jewish meditation. And there's right. a whole we just laid out a whole plethora of historical traditions. Where where did they begin? In your advice, in your opinion? Well, it is one of my very deep-held um, understandings that we are in a very different world than we were 200 even and certainly back uh, years ago. Um, and we are different people. We are a different subject. We are different types of individuals. We think about ourselves differently, about our freedom differently, about our autonomy differently, about our subjects of authority, of meaning, of identity differently. And so for us to simply pluck out a meditative system from the past <clears throat> is hard. Specifically within the Jewish tradition, which was always concerned, as we said, with metaphysical structures, with actions, this <laughs> is part of the reasons why Buddhist meditation hmm and Hindu meditation of some sorts is much more popular today because it's from its inception, it laid an emphasis on the internal worlds, on psychology, on, on mindfulness, on the consciousness. And that is what we're looking for today. And so in the Jewish tradition, it's hard to find it. But I will say, if you are interested in something that is traditionally Jewish and can be very easily i think practiced today or adapted to practice today i would say two things one <laughs> maimonides hmm. yeah i wasn't expecting that. yeah because chapter 51 again from the last um part of his guide to the perplexed maimonides was ahead of his time in many different ways but also his meditative system is a lot about concentration some a, a lot even about mindfulness and it, I think it can be adapted and even more so this is a, a, already a modern person Rabbi uh, Kalmish Klonimus Shapira the, uh, the tzaddik from Piazzesno uh, which we all know for his Esh Kodesh um, sermons from the, 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 Warsaw, the, Ghetto. the Warsaw Ghetto uh, he, he was murdered in 43 by the Nazis He's very famous for that, but he also has a fantastic system, mystical, spiritual system, which does a lot of work with mindfulness, is a, has a lot of correlation with Vipassana, Buddhist mm. meditation, and I think it's simply brilliant. Mm. I think he is a major loss for the mm. Jewish people. If he were not murdered mm. by the Nazis, I do believe we would have a whole other stream mm. of Jewish mysticism today or Jewish practitioners in his in his, his lineage, system right. yeah right yeah it's a great where, where does where can someone go to to access this I mean I, I I wrote it I think the you know I mean I am not going I mean I, I have to say I think the the best exposition of it is in my book and which because he wrote it in different books some of which were not even published in his life and you have to take together connect the dots and you see a whole system there this is your book that you wrote in Hebrew yeah, this is a book that came out of my dissertation. It's called Jewish Meditation or the Jewish Meditative Tradition. It was published by Tel Aviv University Press. And it's in Hebrew. And I would love for it to be in English. I think it is needed in English. <clears throat> and so if anyone hears us and wants to 
fund slash publish a translation of the book, it's up for grabs. Right. Uh, or if there are any translators in the audience that can yeah, have I mean, it themselves. I mean, it's an academic book. You need to translate it properly, but please, I'm, I'm really... We're speaking to you. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really for it. Awesome. Um, and, okay, so that's in terms of, uh, of where someone may turn to today. I'm, I'm always curious, you've done a lot of work on embodiment and the way that these traditions or practices are embodied within the person. And, uh, and when I'm speaking to someone, I'd like to believe that they're also an embodied person mm -hmm. in their own life, in their own narrative. How did you get into all this? How did you come to it? Well, okay. Um, I'm th there's a story there, obviously. I grew up in Haifa in Israel in a secular atheist family. And what happened to me is what happens to not too little Israelis, not too few Israelis, is going to India after the army. I was in India and I thought, well, since I'm in India, I'm going to check out all these gurus, ashrams, meditative courses, etc. And I did. And I got hooked up with Vipassana. And I practiced Vipassana very diligently for more than a decade. Uh, and it did me a lot of good. I do recommend it. And through that, I got into meditation, to learning about meditation, to learning about Jewish meditation, to learning about Judaism, to learning about my tradition, about the Jewish life, etc. And, and then to write a dissertation on Jewish meditation, past and present. So, so in short, that's what happened to me. Today, I, I still practice Vipassana, uh, but I'm also a traditional Jew. I'm, I'm not Orthodox, but I'm an observant Jew. And so I also pray, and you know, uh, uh, as Jews do. Mm. Um, and 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 yeah and i try to i try to learn from from i mean to to integrate these traditions as as beneficial as possible and to get closer to that do you find ways of integrating your vipassana practices with your traditional jewish practice yeah i don't think it's uh, too hard i mean you can be mindful over any i mean anything you do so, and I mean, it's even all over Hasidism, you know, uh, if you are, if you, if, if you, if you connect thought to act, you connect, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, it's all, it's written all over the place. So that's what I try to do. Yeah, yeah, I try cool. to be present when praying, when blessing, etc. I think someone needs to write a study on the, uh, Army to India to mystical academia pipeline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's far from being unique. Yeah, it's it's amazing how many scholars of contemporary spirituality are actually researching themselves. Yes, you know? <laughs> yes. yes. I think uh, Jeffrey Kripal, Professor Kripal, yeah. wrote a book on skulls and mysticism as self-exploration. I love him. Yeah. I love his books. Yes. I love his work. I recommend his book. Awesome. I, it's work. Yeah. You you have been so great, like generous and gracious with your time, and I know that you have to pick up your kids from school soon. <laughs> yeah. I just like to say that there's there's a lot more that we have to discuss, and uh, and maybe there'll be a round two. Who knows if mm -hmm. if the viewers if the viewers demand it for uh, for an encore. We uh, there's a lot of talk uh, that you've published on the methodology of your research into meditation, which mm -hmm. in a way is very groundbreaking. Like there really hasn't been a lot of Thank rigorous you. work, um, and I I've enjoyed reading that, that work in preparation for the interview, um, and. Uh, and my new book. Yes. Yeah, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to pitch to the audience. Anyone who's still listening at this point must have really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, tell us about your latest work and about where they can find you online. You're very prolific online as well. Thank you. 
So, I mean, I have a Twitter account, I have a Facebook account, and I have a blog, though they are mostly in Hebrew. I have an English blog, and things that are translated are there. It's Tomer Persico, WordPress, English. And, and I, well, I publish here and there, and, and my, my new book is about the idea of the image of God, the idea that all humans were created in the divine image, and how it was a seminal influence in the development of Western institutions that we hold dear, such as liberalism, democracy, individualism, and even secularism. Uh, this book has been translated. Oh, wonderful. Though not published yet. And again, if anybody wants to, I mean, I'm looking for a publisher now. Uh, and and I hope it will be, I mean, published within the year or two. Nice. And then... Nice. It's an awesome book. Thank All you. All of my friends are reading it. They're, oh. they're loving it. Oh, that's so and, nice. Um, Thank you. So I can, I can recommend it as well. And uh, looking forward for it to be in English. If there are any publishers out there listening or any agents, um, hit us up. The title of the book in Hebrew is... Adam B'Tselem Elohim, HaRayon Sheshina Et HaOlam VeHaYadut. And what's the title in English going to be? It's going to be, I think, uh, In God's Image... Um, the idea of individuality, freedom, and conscience, I think. Awesome. I think. Tomer, thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you for inviting me. And yeah, I'm, 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 I'm up to another round if, if, if such, uh, you know, if that happens to be uh, relevant. Very cool. I hope so. This has been thoroughly engaging and uh, thoroughly meditative in its own way. <laughs> and uh, and uh, looking forward to to continuing to get to know you right. and to learn from you. Right. And thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing. And thank you out. very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for viewing. Yes, and thank you to the Shalom Hartman Institute for for hosting us here. <laughs> I thought you were going to say <laughs> to the Kadosh Baruch <laughs> <laughs> You know, in Chabad, first we thank the Rebbe, and then we thank yeah. God. Yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. The so yeah. That was good fun. Yeah, Allah. Thanks for coming. Toda Thanks Allah. for doing it.